This is Champagne Problems, where we come together to explore the gray areas of drinking. This is a judgment-free zone where we can all take a look at how we make decisions about our relationship with alcohol. Hello, all of you delightful humans and aliens. Welcome back. Today, we have the one and only Anna David on the show. Anna is a highly recognized New York Times bestselling author. She's the founder of a hugely successful publishing company. She's a three-time TEDx speaker. Anna has also been in recovery for over 20 years and in 2007 wrote the cult novel Party Girl, which is a story ultimately about herself and is currently in production to be made into a movie. How exciting. Let's go talk to Anna. Anna David, welcome to Champagne Problems. Well, thank you for having me. We are very excited to have you on. We have all followed you and known who you are for some time now. It's it's kind of hard not to. You're 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 kind of a trailblazer in this space. Well, thank you. Does that just mean I'm like 51 years old? Is that what that means? Oh my god. <laughs> So I, I said to my co-host that I was going to use the word trailblazer, and she goes, she's going to take it that she's old. Well, she, <laughs> and then she's a woman. Comment. She gets it. But it's, Damn but it. it's also, it is weird because I was talking about this stuff way before it was cool, right. way before sober influencers and hip sobriety, and it wasn't, it's kind of annoying, frankly. <laughs> Because it's like, you're, it's like, oh, wait, now this is like the, when you can have the hit book about it, not not back when yeah. I did it. You know what I mean? Right. Well, you're just one of the brave badasses. Thank you. Exactly. Yeah. Thank you. Exactly. And that's all I meant. I mean, I, all I, meant. I remember. Pioneer. 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 I think it was like the, f the first when I, I, I was late to the game and I think I got Instagram around like 2017 or something. And, and you were like the first person that I saw that was in recovery that was like celebrating vocal. their recovery. Yeah. That was like really vocal about it. Well, and I've, I've been following you on Instagram for since then you were, you were one of my, my first, uh, follow followees or whatever you call it. <laughs> I, and, well, I mean, and if only everyone else was as late to Instagram as you were, then I would really seem like I was on time. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's dive in. And I'm sure, you know, the first question and you've probably told it a million times, but, Will you walk us through some of your sobriety journey? You know, what got you sober kind of thing? Yeah. I mean, I actually, I feel it's been 21 years. So it's. I know. It's I read that. Been Congrats, a minute. by the way. Thank you. So <laughs> since I've even kind of gone, you know, the quick, I don't know. I really loved cocaine. I liked alcohol mm, too. too uh, but mm -hmm. I didn't think I liked alcohol. I don't know. I, it, it, uh, it was all kind of killing me, not in a health way so much as a mental health way. And yeah. I just, I couldn't stop. I wanted to stop. I kept trying to stop. I would try all the things. I would like, I, I had a friend who didn't lock her doors. So I would keep my Coke there and then I would just drive over yeah. there and then um, and then, and then eventually it's just like, I got desperate enough to try this sober thing. I mean, the thing I was never going to do and it got so bad that I was like, okay, I'll try it. Maybe it's better than dying. Doubt it, doubt it. But <laughs> right. just in case, Maybe. just we'll in see. case. Yeah. And it was nothing like I expected it to be. And you know, it's not like my life has been perfect ever since, but my life has been a life ever since. And it is, yeah. uh, 
it's been pretty magnificent. Cool. Cool. Well, thanks for sharing that. So I'm going to read a quick quote. I dreamt of sharing my story with the world or really with anyone beyond my cat. Well, first I dreamt of getting out of the pain I was living in on a daily basis, and then I dreamt of being able to share that journey to help other people through it. Why was it so important for you to begin sharing your journey? And more specifically, why did you want to help others through theirs? Well, I will say when I first started looking into sobriety was, you know, the late 90s, there was nothing online about it. Um, And so I really thought it was terrible. I mean, I would like find random meetings, go to weird places. They were not the right places. And I was suicidal. And I thought, wow, if somebody... I, I, I thought it, uh, sobriety has a terrible publicist. So so let's get the PR a little bit better so that people know that this is not the end of your life. This is the beginning of your life. This is this is where you're going to find laughter again. And, um, and so that's why it was important to me. Then I entered this program where it was pointed out to me that I had been totally self-obsessed my whole life and that actually uh, true joy depended on trying to help other people. And so it became even more important to me. Um, and and it's, fanta- it's fantastic to have. And I had a podcast about recovery and um, one of the first ones out there, if we're going to mm, go back to the trailblazing thing. And I, I had people, not often, I think it happened twice, come up to me at meetings and go, I recognize your voice. This is why I'm here. Because you talked about it, and that I get, wow. I get, I've gotten lovely emails over the years, but there was something about it being in person, and I've taken strangers to meetings and all of that, um, and it means a lot. Sometimes too, like just doing what you needed is important, right? Like filling a gap that you're like, that's really, I need to hear, I needed to hear that it was a positive step. I needed to hear that this was the start of something rather than the end of everything, and yeah, maybe I can do that for others. I think it's so cool when you can put your story out there and just, you know, if it touches one person, great. Right. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I didn't think about it that much. I really didn't. Um, and you know, and I, I live in LA where there's, you know, everyone's sober, everyone's talking about their like heroin addiction. Like my story's really mild. And so it didn't occur to me that, (laughs) that, that that was going to be considered brave. It's like, what, Uh, what? I'm just doing this thing. I'm just talking about my life. So, yeah, it's been good. I I mean, obviously, I want everybody to read Party Girl, but, like, can you give us a little background on kind of where your, you know, alcohol and cocaine use came from? Yeah, I mean, I, um, I, you know, I, I do come from trauma. I don't need to get super into that, but I had no idea I came from trauma. I had no idea I was trying to anesthetize my feelings. I I happened to be a pretty fun person, so I thought I was just having fun, and I was in the beginning. And then when it wasn't fun anymore, um, I, I knew I was addicted, but I I didn't really know why. I, look, I'm a firm believer that alcohol is, I use alcoholism and addiction sort of interchangeably, the words, and that it's, uh, you know, we have a genetic predisposition, but it kind of, you know, is exacerbated or diminished depending on kind of what happens to us, my personal belief. Yeah. 
And I couldn't even begin to unravel what had happened to me until I was sober a while. But, um, but I, you know, I think that's, I, I don't think alcoholism is about, you know, how much we drink or use. It's like, I can't tolerate how I feel and I'll do anything mm -hmm. to change it. And you know, with that Coke, that used to work to change it. So even though it doesn't work anymore, it kind of just exacerbates how horrible I feel. I'm going to do that, you know, cause that might work. Mm -hmm. My real story in life is that is that I got sober and then I got hired to write this column for this magazine called Premiere, called Party Girl. And it was, it was hilarious to me that I was writing this column right when I got sober. So I had to sort of yeah. act like I was living this fabulous, glamorous, decadent life when really my life was really boring and it was like meetings and cats and smoking cigarettes <laughs> and drinking coffee. Right. Um, and, so, and, so that's, and so that was the, my idea for Party Girl. Um, the, it, it's very much based on my life, but it is a novel and, um, which made it fun cause I could exaggerate everything and yeah. And so then I got the rights. So the book came out in 2007. I wrote it in 2005 when I was five years sober. And then I got the rights back last year and republished it myself under my own publishing company and it's in development as a movie and, uh, you know, Hollywood's, I live here in Hollywood, so I know how totally nuts it is. Uh, but it, I'm willing it to happen. It's happening. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, that is the coolest thing ever. I mean, the, the buying the rights back, that is such a cool thing that you did. I mean, how do you envision this movie being depicted? Because it is about you. I know it's, it's also fictional and exaggerated and entertaining, but it is about you. And now you have control. Yes, I have some control. We still don't know how much some. control I have. Some. What's weird is, so my favorite movie uh, as a pioneer is called mm. Reality Bites. Probably didn't mean oh, yeah. that much to you oh, guys. Yeah. No, did it? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, we're not. Okay. I mean, I'm 45. Still, it came out in, I believe, <laughs> 1993. So I'm entering the world. Like, that movie meant everything to me. And back when the rights were optioned, back when the book came out, the, the producer who won the auction for the option said, who do you want to write the screenplay? And I said, the woman who wrote Reality Bites. It's my favorite movie. <laughs> Not really thinking that would happen. So the way Hollywood works is everyone's really excited and then they get two no's and then they literally block you and you, you're like not just been ghosted, but you're like treated like a stalker. So I never oh. heard anything after that initial thing. Years later, I write this story about uh, Reality Bites and how I heard they hired this woman to write the screenplay, but I have no idea because they never even returned my calls. And I get an email from her <laughs> and she's just like, whatever, I guess eight years after the book came out. And she goes, oh my God, Helen Childress is her name. You never saw the script I wrote based on your book? And I said, no. Wow. And, she, and she, goes, oh she goes, here it is. So she attaches it to this email. So I get to read my favorite, the, the author of my favorite screenplay, writing the screenplay based on my book, which is based on my life 10 years after I lived it. It was the most surreal thing ever. But Holy I shit. basically decided I was going to make the movie happen on, on my own terms. First of all, if it gets made, you don't get much money for an option. But if it gets made, depending on the budget of the movie, you can make real money. At least you'll make a lot more than you make on the option. And so I was mm -hmm. like, I don't want HarperCollins benefit. And also, if it's a hit, your book sales can go crazy. So I don't want HarperCollins yeah. to benefit if that happens. And since I'm willing it to happen, it's going to happen. So getting the rights back was was super complicated. It wasn't super complicated. It was super hard to get them to focus enough. 
it was like they cared so little. That's why it was hard. Is like my agent could barely get <laughs> right. someone on the phone, and then finally, just when I said, you know what, I'm just gonna republish it. What's the worst that can happen? They come after me. I'll get press. You know, they're not gonna throw me yeah. in jail. Yeah. And um. And so just huh. when I had decided I'm going to do this, whether, whether they give me permission or not, I got a letter in the mail saying they were giving me permission. Um, wow. Yeah. And that's all in the past year or yeah. so? Yeah. Yeah. Well, congratulations. Thank you. I love how you, I love how you keep saying, like, if, I, you know, if I'm going to will this to happen, it's going to happen. How, how much do you think your writing plays a part in that belief? Ooh. Interesting question. Nice. nice. <laughs> I ask hard you ones. Do. Straight you do. You do. I kind of have to think about that because I don't know that it has anything to do with my writing. I think what I learned about through a major emotional bottom about five years ago is that I had I was keeping the things that I wanted to happen from happening because I was like willing them too too much so it's like they say the universe can't tell the difference between a fear and a wish so I read this book by this guy David Hawkins and he said um oh my favorite okay that's my my boy okay (laughs) so that's why so so that the my favorite line that he's ever written is we get what we want when we stop insisting on it so how do we get, how do we say, I want this to happen, but I'm not scared it's not going to happen? Because it's kind of like the serenity prayer, right? I th- it is, it is. And it's kind of like suit up and show up, like these sort of recovery expressions. Sure. But like, so I think I was keeping things from happening by going, I want this to happen. I want oh, this better happen. Oh my God, what if it doesn't happen? I'm going to be so sad. You know, and it's like, instead I'm just going, oh, it's going to happen. Could be in 10 years. Uh, but it's going to happen. I have zero fear around it not happening because I don't need it to. Uh, and yeah. so it's like, I do think, I do think there's this kind of false idea that like, I will manifest, uh, you know, and it's, it's not that simple for me. I had to kind of come to an emotional place where I was realized, I realized without any of these things, I'm okay. And that's the only time they could happen. Do you know what I mean? Uh huh. Mm-hmm. Yes. Is there anything in the the story that you are like a little insistent about keeping or like this this has to come across no matter what else happens like this <laughs> thing or these things have to be part of it. You know what's weird? No. It's really yeah. weird from the very beginning, you know, like whatever 15 years, who do you want to play? I don't know. Whoever could get mm-hmm. it made. That's always been my Thing. And there, there's one thing that I want because I'm in the process. I don't know when you guys are releasing this, but I'm in the process of doing Tell me what you think of this. I'm so excited. I'm releasing a special edition with a special intro. I've just written it. We're, we're printing it now. And if you buy one of these special editions, you are entered into the running to have a speaking role in the movie. One, oh one person who buys this in the state of California, it's illegal to, you have to make it a contest. You can't make it a sweepstakes because that's like gambling or something. I have no idea. So the thing is, you've got to tell who do you think should play Amelia and whoever gives the most creative answer wins this role. So the one thing I'm insistent upon is that they allow me to throw someone in there with a speaking role. Because I'll have accepted money for this contest, <laughs> but that's 
but the rest of it is it a raffle no you pull no. it out or do you choose uh, well uh, the team the team i yeah. cannot be influenced okay. because i shall i shall say there there is a team um but no you, so it has to be the best answer the the winner has uh, the best answer so i'm i'm I'm, I'm rooting for you i'm rooting for all, of all right. really i'm rooting for <laughs> sam Robbie yeah. plays a Robbie yeah. plays a good Amelia. <laughs> That's a, it's not for Amelia's role, is it? It's just for copies. a part in the movie. Okay, it's, so and so you have to the the way you win the role the 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 role. Come up with Amelia. Thank yeah. you. Exactly. You do. You will not play Amelia. I'm sorry, Robbie. But you won't mm-hmm. play. Amelia. No. Right. Mm-hmm. So you're gonna provide me with well, written instructions out. for how to have a speaking piece in this after we are done recording. I today. will. I will. Now, would you guys? <laughs> Okay, let me ask you this because this is okay. Part of the money is going to a recovery charity. What do you think is the right? So it's a hardcover book. You get swag related to the book and the chance to to win this role and be thanked in the movie. What what would you pay for that? Hmm. Well, it's a gamble, oh, right? I mean, we don't know how damn good this movie's going to be <laughs> and how successful it's going to be, but we're going to assume. Hey, she already willed it. It's shit's going to be ball. It's going to be ball. <laughs> No question. Yep. No question. I haven't um, heard a number come out yet. I would That's pay up really to a thousand dollars. What'd you say, Robbie? I'd pay up to a thousand dollars. Okay, I gotta raise my price. Yeah. Yeah. I think yeah. me and Robbie have different budgets. Yeah, Sam, what would you pay? Well, and I won't it, be offended. It come out of the champagne problem. I was you. more like like three to five hundred dollars. Okay. I got some gift cards I just got for my birthday. I could <laughs> 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 have some snacks I can share with you. I had it. I had I it at three hundred. So. Yeah. Okay. Well, you would get more that way, no question. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it's the only way you would get me, Anna, and yeah. that's all that matters. Right. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Since yeah. I'm rooting for go. you. Yeah. Right, right. The real Amelia. Since it's going right. to be me. Yeah. So looking at your you know, timeline, I've seen, uh, I read a lot of what you do. You've got a very, um, I don't know if colored is the right word, but a very uh, diverse past mm-hmm. as far as your writing goes. Uh, but it, what, it, what it seems is that you've always been and wanted to be a writer. Exactly. That's, that's incredible. Uh, how did that change or, or how did that change when you eliminated substances from your life and entered a, a world of, of you know clean living? It, I mean, it changed radically. I had, I had always wanted to do it. I majored in creative writing. It was, you know, I worked at magazines. It was the only thing I ever wanted to do. And I was b- terribly unsuccessful at it with substances. <laughs> As it turns out, I mean, apparently it worked for like Bukowski and Hemingway and some people, but it didn't work right. for me. But cocaine, I, I don't know how many writers, successful writers are out there like on coke. Maybe alcohol would have worked longer, but I would like, I would, you know, do coke and then I would like rewrite sentences and then I would pace, and then I would smoke and then I would chug vodka. And it was oh. like, it's not oh. a good system, not like a recommended <laughs> writing routine. And I remember no. going to rehab and saying, um, "Not it's." I was there with like musicians and stuff like that, you know, Hollywood, and they would say, "I don't know that I'm going to be okay cre- creating. I'm not going to be as good." My fear wasn't that I wasn't right. going to be as good. It was that it was going to be very triggering to write. That I was going to sit uh-huh. down, keys to keyboard, and be like, "I crave coke," and huh. and 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 it really wasn't true um you know i i ended up my thing is that i'm not 
maybe I'm not a real writer, but I don't want to just write for free. Uh, I have always been pretty clear about if I write, I'm going to get paid. And that has meant mm -hmm, I've yeah. done all kinds of writing. Um, and, you know, I, my first job was at Parenting Magazine. I was writing about, like, you know, 21 years old. I'm writing about, like, craft nipples from breastfeeding. Um, but, <laughs> but, but so I, I wouldn't say my writing got super creative. Like, I was writing for Premier Magazine. I was writing this, mag this column called Party Girl. And then I was writing for Cosmo and Red Book and all, all these different magazines. And, um, and yeah, I mean, I, I, I literally was not able to write in the end, uh, not, you know, not being sober. And now I, I feel a lot of freedom when I write. I don't find it torturous the way I hear people do. Do y'all find writing torturous? People? That means you're a writer. But I say... I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I do. I hate it. Yeah. I love it. You do. You love it. I do. I should probably I do. do it more, though. I mean, I know how like effective it is for me like mm -hmm. from a therapeutic standpoint. Well, mm -hmm. well, there's that. I mean, I actually just am creating this program called The Right. I get to promote all my new shit that I haven't even told anyone about. It's called The, Bring it the on. Right Method, W-R-I-T, and it's a journaling process that I have used every night. Um, where I sort of go through my day and ask myself certain questions, and I find that very therapeutic. But but if you hate writing, you don't need to do it more. I mean, I like check boxes. <laughs> does does this thing have check boxes? That's <laughs> Can you turn it into an app with check boxes? <laughs> it's not a bad idea. You get everybody that way. Yeah. How did you? Where where did your entrepreneurial spirit come from? I know a lot of people have a hard time in our field and in recovery in general about like kind of having that entrepreneurial spirit when it comes to recovery based stuff. Mm. How do you how do you frame that? Because it seems like you've kind of mastered that and and you do it well. I think it's really challenging to do it in the recovery world because I tried yeah. and tried and tried and. Uh, the problem is that the people in general with money in the recovery world are rehabs. And the problem with that is that a lot of them are horribly yeah. immoral people. Yep. <laughs> so for a while there, I was like, well, I gotta, I gotta make a living. If I'm taking money from horribly immoral people, that's okay. I didn't take a lot of money cause it just didn't really work <laughs> out. Cause like, you know, I, so, so, and it is a problem that I've seen many friends who try to start recovery-based businesses fall yeah. into. And I, mm -hmm. I came into it, so I created this website called After Party. Back then, it was changing. I didn't really get that the web world was changing. Like, back then, it looked like it was possible that you could make a living uh, – having ads this was before dynamic ads before we were being followed everywhere and they're serving us you know ads that are uh you know what we talked about yesterday or you know is now comes it up as an catered ad to our mm -hmm. unconscious mind so yeah so yeah. i created this website and a guy who owned a rehab bought it and um you know i was doing that for a while and it just didn't feel good and it wasn't a great way to make a living my philosophy or whatever is there's plenty of money out there my you know my problem for a long time was that I didn't think I was worthy of it and I didn't know that that was my problem um I had been you know come up in the writing world with like you're not paid very much 
And that's because nobody wants, like your writing skills aren't valued. What I learned about five years ago was that that wasn't true and that there was plenty of money. There were plenty of people who had money who valued writing skills. So I just had to find those yeah. people. And the problem, I, I am a very entrepreneurial person. I find it more as creative as writing, kind of coming up with like, because what interests me about writing is psychology and words. And, and business is the same thing. What makes someone buy? What can I say that will make someone pay $1,000 for a book with a chance in a movie or $300? And what can I do to make 300 people buy that versus three? Like all of that stuff is very creative and interesting to me. What I see a lot of people do is they think, oh, I need a website and I need to start posting on Instagram about like how I do this thing. That is not a business. That, that to me is a bit of a dream. It's like you all you need for a business is people who will pay you money. And I think you can either have a, something that a lot of people are going to pay a little bit for or a few people are going to pay a lot for and that the second one is easier to do. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Yeah. I think it's tough, like you said, mm -hmm. in the recovery community too because there's so much um, – at least from my perspective, there's a lot of thought that the way to give back to the recovery community is acts of service and it's supposed to be for free and there's yes. not really supposed to be any business related to it, right? It's the same as being a therapist. There's all these kind of ethical boundaries around it and you're supposed to kind of just be this bleeding heart that's going to give back. And yet there's something so effective about blending both of them and making it such a legitimate service or benefit to the community that it is actually worth money it is actually truly valuable and I think one of the things that you've been really effective at is making storytelling that thing mm -hmm. like in AA yeah like your story like that is of service to others that could help someone it also keeps you sober blah 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 but I think at the end of the day when you're a writer storytelling or writing is something like you said that you're going to get paid for or you're not going to do right and so I think there's been this really cool bridge in your world of being able to figure out how to do both of those things and I keep going back to what you were saying about uh, the project that you've that you've got going and um, like journaling or kind of taking inventory of your day. And I'm just curious if you could talk a little bit about like, what do you see as the benefits of storytelling or mm. sharing your story either for the listener or for you? Such a good question. And, and the, the, there are tons of studies out there about the effect, like literally the effect of like, and I can, and I can never remember studies, but like, like actual debilitating disease, like kidney disease. If you share, they have studies of people in hospitals, like I'm gonna go to other rooms and share about my experience. There are studies that show how healing it is. On a more right. anecdotal, emotional level, I know how healing it is because, um, and again, it's like I sort of did this subconsciously, but by, by being able to articulate what you went through, you're gonna get more clarity. By sharing it with more yeah. people, you're gonna get that a lot of people relate. And then one, you know, from I've had storytelling shows, and I still do them sort of as pop-ups occasionally. Like the kind of third level is you share it, and you get an audience laughing, like an AA meeting, where you understand, mm -hmm. 
oh my God, I'm really not alone. This thing that I experienced, that I wrote, that I'm now sharing, people are showing me in the moment that they relate to it. So it's incredibly healing. It doesn't mean everyone has to do it. Um, I think that right. people think, oh, well, there's something wrong with me if I don't want to do it. No. But also, obviously, it is. it helps a lot of people. And we get engaged by story. You know, a, a book about, like, a bunch of statistics about addiction is not going to engage somebody the way someone sharing their story will. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to be a writer or a professional in the space to share your story. I think that's what's so cool is, like, you're – always going to be the expert on your own story and so anyone can do it absolutely anyone yeah absolutely and i and there's that piece of like there's no discrimination right it's like it's not just the wealthy that can do this it's not just the college educated it's not just the people who are in this space it you can tell your story on whatever scale however and whenever you choose to yeah and people will say well my story's not interesting and it's like well you know, uh, to me, it's a lot about about how it's told. You know, my story is not mm-hmm. that interesting. And I've told it a million and one times in six, you know, whatever, eight books and hundreds of articles. And it's why I believe when it comes to books, the reason my company does what it does is that I, ju- I believe everyone has a book in them. I'm not sure everyone should write their own book if they want it to be as good as it can be. And people, Mm -hmm. I think, get offended by that. And they're like, well, everyone tells me I'm a good writer. And that's fantastic. And you probably are. But if you don't write every day, all day, you can only be so good at it. You know? Yeah, Robbie tried to write a book, and it it led to this podcast. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Is that a true story? I told her that in an email yesterday. I was like, we need to talk. Yeah. 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 You're going to make it. We wouldn't be here. Well, so the thing that we're going to start offering, we kind of have offered it and, and just haven't promoted it, is like, yeah, we turn your podcast into a book. Why not? That's what we're going to do. That's what we need. We're going to do. Yeah. We need to get about 50 more episodes done. (laughs) So Anna, can you tell us, can you tell us a little bit about, just for our listeners to know too, a little bit about Legacy Launchpad Publishing? Yeah, I mean, we started because two different people who uh, wanted to become recovery advocates came to me and wanted me to write their books. And I don't do ghostwriting so I, anymore. And so I asked a, a writer friend to do it. And then I saw what these two people did with their books and they were like, suddenly huge they're on you know the today show and they're on all these you know everywhere they're jay shetty's podcast and they're like starting huge businesses and start you know doing all of these things and i saw what a book could do if you had business acumen what you could do with a book and so you know we've never advertised or promoted and uh, people we've had you know for for years i've had just a steady stream of people who come to me and want that and that's how we grow is someone else comes and i'm like okay i better find another writer i better find another mm-hmm. project manager and and so now i i really should memorize this but i think we've put out 24 books um wow so and and they they started off a lot of recovery memoirs but now it's mostly business books about everything mm-hmm. in the world. So the way it works is somebody comes to me, um, if they seem like a good fit, because honestly, most people are not, we try to do a really good weeding out process on on the website. But if they, mm-hmm. if they get to us um, and they seem like a good fit, 
I partner them with one of my writers and then, um, and then they spend, you know, usually three to four months talking and we have a book that, you know, I, I believe indistinguishable from a New York Times bestselling book, traditionally published, that's in that client's voice and written by that client. I look at my writers as people who are just downloading and shaping the work. And then we publish it and, you know, we make it number one Amazon bestseller in its categories. And um, we don't do the publicity, but we really guide them through, okay, like, what are you going to do? How are you going to make your investment back? How are you going to make 10 times what you paid us back? Mm -hmm. So that's amazing. And what a compliment that you haven't had to market it, right? And that, that still, this is how big the business has grown. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't even really know how. I'm like, for such a high-end product, I was like, do you do Facebook ads? Like, I'm glad I haven't had to figure it out. But um, but it's still a lot of work. And the right people find you, it sounds like. Yeah. Yeah. It's neat to kind of look at the full circle. Um because now, you know, in the beginning, it was you kind of sharing your story and getting it out there. And that was, you know, in your mind, it was obviously cathartic for you, but to help others. And now fast forward 20 something years and you're helping people, you know, develop a platform and a medium and and a pathway to share their stories. And it's it's like a pay it forward kind of mission. Yeah. It's really incredible. Yeah, it, it, it is. Because I have watched people um, just fully transform from this journey. I've seen people not transform and pay us a lot of money and just have something nice to put on their shelf. And it's like, it's kind of like we can only do so much. So, Mm -hmm. so, but it's incredible to watch it happen for people. How much does, uh, honesty play a role in, in kind of your, your coaching people to, to share their stories and write their stories? I mean, or, or honesty being one piece, but I mean, obviously if you're helping someone share things about themselves and their journey, there's almost a you know, a therapeutic kind of coaching aspect of it. Is that part of it? That's interesting because we're kind of switching um, it up. I, by, I, basically I have someone on my team who's amazing. She's been our project manager for years, but she's a coach. And she said to me, I want to move more into coaching than project managing. So we're adding a coaching aspect to it. That's awesome. Cool. I wouldn't say honesty is the biggest issue, but it's the biggest issue is related to that. The biggest issue is that releasing a book is terrifying to mm-hmm. people and they don't know that. So they uh, can get very difficult. They can start to say uh, they don't like this and they don't like that and they want to change the cover and they want to change one word. And I know it's fear because I've done it myself. But they don't know that. And so the coaching is designed to make them, help them understand the process that they're going through. Like get them unstuck when they have no idea they're stuck. Yeah. They're like, no, I just don't like this thing. And you're like, so I think it's probably something else. (laughs) Yeah. 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 That's awesome. And so you guys are adding that as another kind of facet. Will that be optional? That's literally what we're figuring out right now. I mean, what... I think it should be included, but I'm not sure mm-hmm. everyone's going to do it. Um, but yeah, because I think a lot of our, uh, you know, a lot of our clients are so busy. They don't, they're they're like, okay, wait, I already have to talk to a writer for a book. Now mm-hmm. I have to do coaching too. They may not see mm-hmm. it as the benefit right. that it is. I kind of want to shift gears real quick and talk about, you know, because our, our podcast is, is based more in the sober curious space than the recovery space. And, 
we talk a lot about the the problems with the social acceptability of alcohol use in our culture. How much of your work is geared towards that and more, you know, sending a message? Or, I mean, do you have anything that that uses your narrative or your story to to kind of um, to to get to like young young adult women that you know are in LA that are in the in the party space to kind of help them navigate that without going down the same road that, that you went down. Are you involved in anything like that, or is that part of your mission at all, like your own personal passion? I mean, I don't know. I don't think it is because I don't really relate to that, and I don't. And I yeah. can only, you know, I'm not a therapist, so it's like I can only relate from my own experience. I don't. I do not get. I'm fully support, but I don't get sober curious. I had no idea that was a thing. Um, what I get is like not being able to manage it at all and desperately, you know, looking for a solution. To me, it's mm-hmm. like I don't. I don't even look at it like okay, there's people and they could go down the bad path or they could do, go down the, the not bad path. It's like I see it as like you're you're kind of predetermined. Like you're either black you're either going to go down yeah. that path or you're not. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. So I guess that's, I, I of course could be totally wrong, but that's just my experience. Wow. Yeah. That's a valid answer. Yeah. It, I mean, sure. I think that's the, where everyone's got their different space, right? Like there is um, at least my passion behind our, mission with the podcast is filling what I see as a really large gap between there are folks with alcoholism and there are folk and then there's everyone else (laughs) and we know generally what to do with folks with alcoholism and treat severe substance use disorders moderate substance use disorders but for all these other folks who are showing up in therapy offices and doctor's offices and things like that over the past couple of years where their drinking's increased and they're not really sure what it means and they're um in a problematic kind of drinking phase and not yet at like severe substance use disorder. Like that's really who we hope to target, help speak to through the podcast. And I think it's really cool to hear for me, the black and whiteness of you either have to completely stop or you're in active alcoholism, right? Like that's severe substance use disorder. Like I like keeping that separate from the way that Mm -hmm. we, target and treat a gray area drinker because it should be separate because they are different. Yes, but I don't think someone without a drinking problem is going to therapy talking about their increased drinking. Like that's, you know, I, I don't. Um, but interesting. But I'm a super black and white thinker, you know. I, I say it a little louder for people in the back. Anna. But you, but you know what I mean. Like I, I think that, like, okay, my my boyfriend, um, non-alcoholic, he doesn't think of, like he's not like going to therapy and talking about that because it's not relevant. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what to me, what does it matter if it's severe alcoholism or if you're curious? Like, if you want to, if your life is going to be better without alcohol in it, then then what does it matter what it's called? Yeah, interesting. I totally disagree. I, okay, but look at we how we can. <laughs> I love it because really, I mean, it, 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 for me, I love when people come to therapy who have not yet developed what I would consider to be alcoholism. And I love the opportunity to intervene at a prevention level where 
maybe someone has had one or two consequences and they're not yet drinking at a problematic level and they're aware of their predisposition. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a lot of what is difficult about our field now as it is shifting so much and it is moving out of the black and white area. And personally, just as a therapist, I'm seeing a lot of benefit to a lot of people who are now welcome to be treated for it. Whereas before it was like, unless you are in full blown alcoholism, there's just nowhere really for you to, to go. Um, but I love that too. I mean, and honestly, that's, that's my favorite thing about this podcast is I love the different perspectives that we do get. And I love having guests on who are, um, who come at it from a totally different angle. Like that's what helps, I think, everyone in the space grow. Totally. Yeah, and I don't really know. Like you get to see it up close. Right. I know my, like what goes on in here. Totally. Right. And what people tell me. And For sure. what people tell me is interpreted through this. Yeah, and I, so. and I think the difference between what you guys are talking about is the subjective right. definition of the word problematic. And I, I appreciate the way that, that you look at it. I mean, both of you guys, obviously, but and I like how how you kind of put that thing. It's like, look, if you're having to if you're having to bring it up, it's a problem. Like, yeah, to you that means <laughs> that it's a problem. It's a problem. <laughs> it's a problem. Yeah, you know. But but I think it actually requires more bravery for that other Hell group. And I yes. Have but but because and I've sponsored those people and I feel it's so mm-hmm. easy for me to go oh this is a problem there's mm-hmm. nothing that I can do to convince myself that I was just going through a wild and crazy fight yeah. phase 21 years ago like it was yeah. problematic and and I only know how to make right. changes when it's a major problem yeah and yeah. That, I don't but that's why really we really know because yeah, our whole field shares that view right it's, this is a normal it's, it's, normalizing is to be able to help help people have that type of bravery and, and encourage yeah. them to have those conversations. So cool. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I don't get, I don't, I don't even, I hats off to people who can do that. <laughs> no, we're, try, we're, we're trying to figure it out. Well, so we always wrap up Anna with um, kind of the, the standard questions for our guests. And I think the, the one that I'd love to hear from you is just why, why do you care? Why are you in this space? Why do you care? I care because I think that despite all the ch- the conversation about this in the last decade, the public discourse, which I think is awesome, there is so much misunderstanding around addiction. Um, and there's so much misunderstanding in the world about many things, but this is the only one that I, not the only one, this is something that is the most interesting to me, the perception between what it is and what people think it is. There's such a wide uh, swath between those two. And um, and people die as a result of that misunderstanding. And if those of us who have experienced it can share about our perspective on it, um, we can stop people from dying. I can't go out and do a lot to stop people from dying in other ways that they die. But this I can. That's why this question is so important is we always get a different answer and it's always so meaningful. Thank you. It's always power, just power. Could you list off three top things and you can apply this to different areas. Um, maybe I'll, maybe I'll specify how about in your professional life, the top three things that removing substances did for it. 
well, I was uh, doing coke at work <laughs> um, and, and and getting fired from right. every job. So uh, that, that okay, that bad. being said, That's this is bad. not going to be a quick answer because I've been fired from every job out, uh, in sobriety, too. <laughs> um, yeah. Nice. So it's a lot of a lot. jobs uh, to be fired from. But, but, True, but. Um, it, it allowed me to actually make progress forward because I could see, um, it wasn't everybody else's fault to see that was my fault. Um, and, um, it, it could give me, okay, this is number two, the ability to have self-love and see that I'm worthy of not working for abusive people and of making money. Um, and the third thing is it allows me to, to have new ideas all the time. Um, the right method, that journaling process that I was talking about, the whole goal of it is to come up with new ideas um, because I think it's kind of what gives us juice and what keeps us alive. And it's how we become successful. I think it's all about an evolution. It's like we can't stay doing the same things because the world is changing too quickly and because it keeps us dead inside like we have to be involved love it growth anna david la ladies and gentlemen thank you so much thank you for having me this was really fun this yeah thanks really for being here it's good to finally meet you thanks again the information and opinions shared on this podcast are solely those of the hosts and guests and are not a substitute for medical advice if you feel like you may need professional help here are some resources for the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration hotline, call 1-800-662-4357 or visit smsa.gov. For listeners in the Charlotte, North Carolina community, visit dilworthcenter.org or call 704-372-6969 or visit theblanchardinstitute.com or call 704-288-1097.